0: Agustin Fuentes is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University. His research focuses on the biosocial, delving into the entanglement of biological systems with the social and cultural lives of humans, our ancestors, and a few of the other animals with whom humanity shares close relations. He has written many books, but his latest one, yeah, I believe, will be of particular interest to us today. It's called Why We Believe evolution and the human way of being in it. He examines our capacity or maybe even evolutionary necessity to believe. Professor Fuentes, welcome to Eurotrash.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Let me just pick it up right where I left it off in the introduction. Let's begin with, you know, the big bombs. So is belief just a surprising kind of add-on of Homo sapiens like an accidental byproduct, if you will, or is it actually central to our quote unquote evolutionary success as a species?
1: No, I mean, clearly it's central to our evolutionary success as a species, right? So, but but let's think, what, what do we mean by belief? Belief is not just about religion or it's not just about commitment. A belief is this human capacity, right? The capacity to believe is the human capacity to look at the world around us, to take in all of our experiences all of the things from our interactions with others, all of our cultural, historical, what have you, all the information we have and blend it with our creativity, with our imagination and develop, right, or understand or accept ideas, concepts, ideologies, and commit to them, commit to them so fully and so holistically that they become our reality. That's, that's what belief is. It's the ability to commit to something so incredibly, even something that's intangible that we don't touch or feel or see and believe it so much that it is our reality and it affects the way we interact with each other and with the world.
0: So it's not just abstract thinking, it's no. committing to that abstract thinking. Exactly. And then bringing it to its conclusion
1: absolutely so much so that it changes the way in which we see the world so for example across the planet people have different belief systems but it's not just about religion it's also about things like economics and love and whatever you know we commit to these ideals and ideologies so much so that they're very real for us and that's that's powerful
0: but did it give us some sort of an edge when we were competing in our past with let's say other hominins Or other animals, even is that something that's useful to us, or is it just like
1: so? Step back for a second. Everyone always tries to think about our past as filled with competition between us and other hominins, us and other groups, us and other animals. That's how I see it this horrible, eternal, like a reality. No, in fact, most animals, yeah, there's a lot of competition out in the world, but most animals are like finding a way to live, finding a way to find each other, hanging out, sleeping, eating, right? (laughs) Um, which can be challenging, but but it's not all about fighting or competition. So let's step back and ask ourselves, what what were the biggest challenges um, uh, for, for our ancestors, right? Uh, two million years ago, right, our ancestors were, you know, fairly small, uh, hairless, fangless, clawless, hornless, ape-like things walking around on two legs who were pretty much naked and had a few rocks and sticks. But, but what else did they have? They had each other. And they had an incredible capacity for creative engagement, for collaboration. And so if over these last two million years, these groups of earlier us got together and committed to certain things, believed fully in certain things, had hope and dreams and imaginations and went after them, you could see how that would give them a leg up relative to a lot of other things, ability to challenge or encounter new difficulties. It also led a lot of those groups to going extinct, right? A lot of groups were like, I know if we just cross that mountain, we'll be fine. And then they all died. So it's not belief is not all good. Something that is very beneficial to us as a species doesn't necessarily mean it is always positive. It just means it provides a capacity, the ability to do something that is maybe not as common in other organisms.
0: You mentioned that some other, for example, hominins went extinct because maybe they had different ideas, different beliefs. Do we know for certain or, that, or different for example, capacities, different different capacities. capacities for belief, yeah. for example, do we know if the Neanderthals had a similar approximate capacity for belief so, as we do right now or we know nothing about that?
1: I mean, Neanderthals are us, just a little different, right? I mean, most people debate like, what are Neanderthals? Neanderthals had art, had complex tools, had complex social lives, had complex foraging and hunting, had complex societies, interacted with one another across great distances, and had sex with our direct ancestors. So, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm just going to say that Neanderthals are a slightly different version of us. Now, it's true there are no full sort of neanderthals around today but but most humans on the planet are walking around with a little bit of neanderthal DNA inside them and who knows what kind of cultural inheritances we also have so a lot of different populations have sort of disappeared or dissipated but we have to sort of think what that means because we contemporary humans right the current understanding is that you and I and everyone watching or listening to this podcast um is actually a conglomerate of a whole bunch of populations right, that were slightly different over the last 500,000, six, 700,000 years. Um, so what's really interesting is that we're all blends of different ancestors and pasts, uh, and that, that's actually really interesting. So yeah, other kinds of hominins did live, ones that weren't just like us and they're no longer around, we're still around. So understanding why we're still around is very interesting, but we're also not just a line, right, for two million years. We're a giant bush of interactions and blendings of different people.
0: Yeah, I hosted an an English anthropologist a while back, Chris Stringer, he works for the Natural History Museum in London, and I didn't know, but you know, he clarified it for me that at one point there were at least five different hominins walking on this earth, and that blew my mind. Because we were taught in school, okay, first this one, and then this one, and then this one, and now us, right? But we are the only ones left, though. We
1: are the only hominin left standing. Yep.
0: All right. You mentioned cooperation a little bit uh, earlier. Not so long ago, I hosted Professor Edward Slingerland on the pod. Mm. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He wrote a book called Drunk and the Central Idea. Okay, you have. He explores the (laughs) idea that it was the consumption of booze that gave us a sort of a nitro boost um, in an evolutionary sense because that allowed us to let our guard down and cooperate in bigger and more diverse groups. Now, not that the belief and alcohol are mutually exclusive, but I mean, actually, I think he mentions in the book that even with the earliest record of human civilization we currently have, I think that's the Gübekli Tepe in, in Turkey, right? Religious rites were always, you know, they always involved getting hammered like there's no tomorrow. The two often come together, don't they? Anyway, I just wanted to know what do you think of his idea?
1: So let me first say that um, uh, for everyone who's interested in human evolution, they should read Chris Stringer's work. Uh, It's really fantastic. And Slingerland's latest book and his earlier work is really fascinating. So people that you've got great people on the show, congrats um so so let's let's think about that for a moment um so first of all cooperation right you know getting together doing stuff together collaborating coordinating in ways that are pretty intense that's that's our superpower right that that's what humans really do right at the baseline now it's both good and bad right right we cooperate for wonderful things but we also cooperate to do horrible things right To, to win a war right you have to be the most cooperative side right you have to care most about each other uh to risk death and going out there so anyways Cooperation is at the heart of everything that humans do. But so this whole idea about intoxication is related to sort of my arguments about belief, about creativity, about cooperation. So this this basic concept of intoxication is not just about alcohol, but but alcohol is a fairly common one around the globe and pretty early. Uh, And humans aren't the only thing that seek out fermented fruits to to get high. Uh, There's a lot of other animals given the option. They'll go right for it. but but with humans, what we see is these getting together for ritual or for other kind of purposes, this bonding, this sort of feeling, this sort of moment of transcendence, right? This sort of belief or experience of the more than the here and the now. Um, humans do that and probably done this for a long time. We have good evidence of cave art and even earlier forms of expression that reflect that. But you know what? Humans also recognize that the physiology, the mind, the body, when we alter it, when we change it, sometimes we feel even more. And so, yeah, humans reach out to alter themselves to be more in the moment or more engaged. Uh, and that's actually another amazing cultural thing. You know, humans on a regular basis poison themselves to feel stuff. Um, you know, and I'm not, please don't get me wrong. I mean, a good vino or, you know, great cerveza, uh, you know, a good, good alcohol is fantastic, but um, it is toxic, right? and humans develop this sort of dance with a wide variety of toxic substances harmful to the body in some ways but maybe fruitful in others to the mind or the experience that 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 balance that's us right that's a weird thing to do most animals if they you know eat a ton of fermented berries and pass out they don't eat any more berries for a long time <laughs>
0: Yeah it's Monday today and I for, unfortunately I poisoned myself a little bit on Friday <laughs> evening and I still feel the consequences.
1: The social component of that is that's what's really fascinating. People always talk I mean, about fun, and yes, and others talk about like that the ritual aspect and that's fascinating the sort of mind expansion or sort of alteration of physiology for ritual and for things. But there's another thing too about about alcohol and many other kinds of things coffees cigarettes even in in, in some ways, this notion of social togetherness, this mutual engaging. And so uh, I think we we tend to think mostly of these sort of ritual or mind-altering functions of a lot of these things. But in many cases, they're just add-ons to the human social sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I remember in high school, at a certain point, we just all... Had to start smoking collectively, you know, just to hang out and uh, during break, (laughs) during recess and stuff. I don't think any of us really liked it. I, I had like terrible headaches. I felt nauseous. But I was still going along with it. I was like, I want to hang out with, you know, with my friends and they're well, all smoking.
1: That's part of this whole belief and commitment and perception thing, right? There's cigarettes. I mean, smoking tobacco, while it might be enjoyable for some, it's actually a horrible toxin. It's really <laughs> awful. And yet humans do it all over the place, not just for the physiology, but frequently for the social, right? It, it, the humans poison themselves socially in a wide variety of means. Uh Why? Because that's part of what we do. We commit wholly and fully to the social.
0: I mean, it's also a little bit fun.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. The I'm not advocating no.
0: it. I'm not advocating it, but...
1: No, no, no. Physiological enhancement is, is something that humans do all the time. Coffees, right. teas, alcohol, tobacco, you name it. There's all sorts of kinds of things. You know, cream puffs, you know. <laughs> we, we are, humans are really sensory organisms. And we really enjoy culturally modified means of messing ourselves up.
0: Amen. <laughs> oh, okay back to belief you made a really cool video essay for big think it's available on youtube the title is why sex food and shelter aren't enough for homo sapiens and in it among other things you say our hormones our neurons our muscles the enzymes in our microbiome in our guts actually respond to the way in which we believe the world is Okay, let's say I believe the world is an absolutely horrifying place in which nothing good ever happens. What exactly does that mean for my brain and my gut? I'm guessing nothing particularly good.
1: Yeah, no. So if you're, let's say, really paranoid or terrified or experiencing experienced yeah. horrible things, so your worldview is this very, very negative thing. First of all, just think about your muscles, right? So the way in which you're going to hold stress in your body, right, is going to be stressing the muscles, and you'll have a variety of things, catecholamines, uh, cortisol, a variety of other hormones and different physiological sort of chemicals in your body are going to be challenging and pushing on much of your muscle and muscle function and development, which is going to pull out energy and other stresses from your body. So that's one thing, right? Um, uh, and it also might affect the functioning of your muscles, how effectively they function or not. Another thing is, um, stress can alter this kind of perspective on the world that induces stress can alter sort of what your gastric juices look like, sort of how your stomach is functioning, which can impact the lining of your stomach, which can actually have your body eat away at bits of the stomach and intestine, which can then alter the actual make of the microbiome. And so those microbiome, all those little, sort of. Bacteria that live in our guts help us not only digest food, but they also help our bodies function in great ways or function normally. And so, when you alter your microbiome through stress, you you radically murder right billions of different bacteria in your system, and that actually changes your blood flow, the quality of your neurological functioning, your tastes, um, your sort of digestive patterns, all of those things that have a cascade effect on the rest of your body. So, you know, living stressed out in in sort of a kind of uh moment of stress or negativity can have serious physiological like body damage
0: not to force you to become my personal physician but that's exactly what kind of happened to me i was in a really stressful period and i developed a horrible case of ibs
1: mm, absolutely
0: years ago it's much better now because i Good. feel better but Yeah, I recognize myself and what you were just saying, like, probably before that, I wouldn't have believed it. It would be like, either you're healthy or not healthy. What does it have to, you know, stress, whatever.
1: Yeah. And that whole whole ability, what we believe, how we perceive the world to be, how we perceive others impacts our actual physiological functioning. That's why this whole idea of body and mind, this duality thing, sort of Descartes or what have you. No, that's completely wrong. We're always, right? integrated 100% in our culture, our histories, our experiences, our blood circulatory systems, our hormone systems, our neurobiological systems, all of that's interacting. And it interacts in very complicated, but very real ways. But as you said, from your own experience, people know this. All humans know this. Like When you feel bad, right? let's say you have a horrible stomach ache, that could be because you have an infection in your stomach, or it could be because you're incredibly sad and you've just lost a loved one and and your physiological system is responding to create and facilitate this kind of pain. Both are real, right? There's no such thing as in the head for humans, right? <laughs> because if it's in your head, it's also in the rest of your body.
0: This is gonna to be too much information, but I remember when we had the finals tests in high school and mm-hmm. I just had like explosive diarrhea all the time.
1: So people underestimate. So there, there's this wonderful term put forward by Scott Gilbert, Lin Chu, and another group of wonderful biologists holobiont right that humans and many organisms we're not just one self right we're actually multiple cells in one so what that means is there's a bunch of other organisms that live on the human right in our microbiome in our guts in our mouths um in our genitals in our ears in our nose there's actually millions tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of bacteria in different spaces living with us and if when we're living in sort of i say harmony with them when their mix is good we feel better. But when we stress out, when we change our physiological responses, that damages those others living as part of us. And that has huge effects. So the the explosive diarrhea, it's actually quite common to have digestive issues around stress. That's one of the biggest ones because we stress, we change the ecology, we, you know, mass murder a ton of our microbiome, and it comes back to kick us in the butt.
0: That just makes me think of those slightly irritating people. I'm I'm sure we all know a few who are never sick. And then if you ask them, you know, in good faith, hey, bro, how come you're so healthy all the time? They say, oh, it's all in your head, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and pardon my French, but that always annoys the living <laughs> shit out of me. First of all, I, I really, I thought it's an idiotic statement and a bit of a narcissistic provocation as well, maybe maneuver, whatever. But it does actually contain a grain of truth after yes, all, maybe? a grain. Yeah. Okay. I was does. hoping you would I mean, say no because otherwise I have to apologize to a lot of people. No. 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 Yes.
1: I mean, it could be just the people being obnoxious, right? It could just be <laughs> them. But, but in many ways, you know, this this what's called the psycho system, right? The brain the sort of nerve system throughout the body and the hormone systems that respond to it, that's a critical part of everyday life, of all we do. And so how you feel, how you think, how you perceive yourself to be impacts the entire bodily function, which has all these cascade effects. So it's not the only thing, right? right. Uh, diet, infection, uh, genetic history, all of these things matter, um, but uh, it is a significant part. How you perceive yourself to be what state of mind you're in, impacts how your body functions.
0: This is going to be grossly oversimplifying things, but is the opposite scenario possible as well then? For example, if I start cultivating some sort of a reckless you know, optimism, if I really throw myself into it and start believing in it, would I actually hack my body into being this sort of a flourishing, I don't know, amusement park of a, of a system all of a sudden?
1: So the short answer is no, right? That's if that was true, then all of those, you know, gurus uh on the web and other places telling you how to be happy and happiness and wellness, that would all work. Right. Some of it works for the reason I just told you, right? Being in a good place. But being in a good place is not just thinking yourself in a good place. It's actually being in a good place, right? It requires friends and family and finance and, you know, living in a place that's not at war. It means avoiding racism, sexism, classism. I mean, the thing is, it's not up to you, right? It's up to you to try but the social context. So there are many people who could have the best possible worldviews and perspectives available, and yet they're they're not going to succeed because of the context, the ecology in which they exist. So it's never just us. That's the real challenge, right? Because if we're really interested in health and wellness, it's about societies. It's about communities. It's not about individuals.
0: That's refreshing to hear because, you know, the YouTube algorithm... Keeps trying to convince me otherwise that it's all in my head and if I do some sort of a manifestation, everything is gonna be just fine, as if climate change is just gonna disappear if I think there is no climate change.
1: Right. You can you can feel as great as you possibly can, but you know, as the sea levels rise a couple meters above your head, you will die.
0: (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. Now, full disclosure, I'd say I'm a good old fashioned Eastern European lefty and an atheist. But I wasn't quite raised that way. I was brought up as a pretty liberal Catholic, but a Catholic. Nevertheless, I went to Bible school and and Sunday mass and all of that. Also politically, I mean, yes, there were differences between my parents, but I wouldn't say either of them was a Marxist, actually far from that. So I didn't absorb their belief systems. um, But on the other hand, I can't quite pinpoint the exact moment when I internalized beliefs that I, you know, consider my own right now. There was no Hollywood-esque moment of sudden clarity. You know, it's not like I saw a baby cat uh being <laughs> hit by a car and then realized God doesn't exist or something. It just seems I arrived to where I'm at in a completely organic way. And of course these beliefs seem the only possible ones to hold for me. Right. So I think I'm asking a pretty big question. Why do we believe what we believe?
1: So you just described it. I, I think that's that's really brilliant. Everyone wants this sort of Hollywood version of belief, like this moment of revelation. Ah, You know, I like the, the, the cat being hit by a car, a ray of light, some amazing thing that catalyzes and verifies everything. That, that's actually not the way it happens. When those big events happen, you've already right, begun to believe those things. And this just con- is confirmatory or what have you. Um, but but for, let me ask you the question. So did you grow up in Berlin?
0: No, I'm originally from Slovenia. Oh, Slovenia. Um, oh,
1: okay. Yeah, I
0: actually, I, I was born in Yugoslavia, to be <laughs> Which uh, to no be precise, longer exists. <laughs> which, Yeah, no lo- sadly for me, no longer exists. Then grew up in Slovenia and then moved to Berlin okay. yeah, eight, so, nine years ago, something like that.
1: So think of that, that, that individual or personal journey, right? So as you sort of grow up you're growing up in a time of radical change, right? You're, you're growing from your parents, you're learning from them, you're learning from your peers, but you're also in communities, societies and nations. In fact, you know, the nation you were born into no longer exists. So think about how those experiences radically influence the worldviews that you have, the perspectives. And then you go through that in your earlier years. And what age did you move to Berlin?
0: I was quite old already. Um, I was, what, 28? Okay, but that's I'm still, I mean, now
1: in the big part of, of human existence, right? So you're pretty formed, you're on the way, and then you go to Berlin, which is an amazing international city, but has this sort of, uh, sort of historic framing um, of, of Eastern Europe, the post sort of pre and post Soviet right. context, and in fact, just its long history as a center of sort of thought and engagement. And so you move through life, acquiring these different sort of, experiences, ideas. You meld them with your imagination and creativity. They meld you as you meld them. And then you get to Berlin and you're actually exposed to even more stuff, right? And so this sort of construction of belief is ongoing. But here's the way I like to put it together. And I think I write this in my book. People say you are what you eat. I mean, that's sort of true, right? What you put into your body has a huge impact on on what's going on. But, But, I mean, it's only mildly true. But what's really true is you are who you meet. That is, who you're around, the communities you grew up in or moved through or the experiences those communities have radically shapes, critically shapes the way in which you perceive and exist in the world. Right. So, you know, to think about the particular history you're discussing um, coming out of that, it's not surprising in any way, shape or form that you hold the general views that you hold now, given that historical frame and context. Now, you could have had very different parents. Right or moved in, in Slovenia, you could have also moved in a very different group of folks, and you could have some extreme sort of, uh, I would argue, right-wing views at this point, right? Or you could have, you know, come out a hardcore, one of the remaining hardcore Marxists on the planet. So, I mean, it it really depends on all of the particulars of your history. But you called it right. It's all those different experiences that you had that shape you. And so people who grow up in a very homogenous landscape in exactly the same place, you'd expect to see more homogeneity, right? More homogeneity, more similarity between individuals in that space. Whereas someone who grows up moving around the world or who undergoes radical change in the community in which they exist, like their nation changes, um, that, that can alter the way you, 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 you see the world or are in the world. So, I mean, there's no easy answer to why we believe, but it has to do with where you are, who you're with, and what happens in those communities.
0: I really do recognize myself in, in what you're describing. Uh, in particular, it made me think about the sense of humor um, mm. and, and the people who became closest to me. I feel like we shaped each other's senses of humor
1: a mm. lot mm.
0: and we used humor a lot. And now, you know, as I'm getting older, it's harder and harder to bond with people that don't share this particular brand of humor.
1: Well, and it's interesting too, as as humans age, right? They become, not, all, not completely, but more frequently, more sort of focused and centralized on particular sets of beliefs or particular sets of perceptions of how the world is, and that it makes it more difficult to engage with people who don't fit into that, right? Who don't. So the older we get, the harder it is. Not impossible, but the harder it is to see the world through other people's eyes. Unless, unless you travel enormously. Unless you get to see the world in multiple things. You just said you're in Japan right now. You've been in Berlin. The more one travels, and this is difficult, but the more one travels if they travel well in the sense of going and being places and respecting and being a little bit humble about what is right in the world or or how to be, you see what I think is the most important thing about humanity, and that is there are multiple successful ways to be human. There are multiple successful ways to be human. And when you travel the world, you see that. You see people can be very different from you and still be very human, very successful. It can work. And once you recognize that, you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know what? I know what I believe. I like what I like, but it's not the only way to do things.
0: Oh, wow, that was beautiful. That was awesome. And nobody ever tells you, go travel. Nobody tells you this is the antidote um, for, yeah, for becoming more, I don't know, how should I put it, closed or you know, less or
1: just, no, just becoming flexible, you know, yeah, less flexible, right? If, if you're forced to be with people around the world, you're like, Oh, wow, you know, people are amazing. I don't like all of it. I haven't liked everywhere I've gone, but I've learned everywhere that I've gone. And, and I've learned that different people can be in different ways. I mean, that's probably if I would say what's the most important education I've had, it's growing since I was a child. Uh, because I have family spread all over and for a variety of other reasons, I traveled and I've never stopped, except for a couple years in the pandemic. But this really, this like 2020 and 2021, were the only two years of my 57 years of life, I think that I didn't travel thousands of miles.
0: You got me worried there for a second when you said that as we get older, um, yeah, we become a, a bit more rigid in our thinking, letting probably fewer and fewer things in, especially back home there's a lot of people who become deeply religious as they get closer and closer to to the end. And yeah, I don't know. I kind of don't want that to happen to me, to be quite honest, but yeah. I can't completely rule it out, I suppose.
1: It's it's actually a really, really common thing. And, and yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want that to happen or that's, but you know, if that's what makes people feel good, I'm, I, you know, I, who are we to not Right. Because as you age, as maybe you recognize, which is this power that humans have, which is a horrible power, which is we know it's all going to end. Right. For each one of us. Uh, Personally, we know it's going to end. And that's a hard you know, that's the entire, you know, philosophical discipline of existentialism is based on this reality and and. We know that. And so that's the human, to be human is to live in existential crisis. Um, and however people navigate that, you know, I, I too, I, I can't imagine I would go in that direction, but who knows? If it makes someone happy and makes that part of their existence easier... I don't think that's necessarily bad, unless there's the correlate where, because a lot of religious beliefs are incredibly racist or sexist or pushing against others. So I would hope that part doesn't happen. If people just want to feel good about something beyond death, uh, you know, who am I to take that away from someone?
0: You mentioned ideology before at the beginning. Do you make a distinction between belief and ideology? Specifically in the sense in which, you know, a lot of continental philosophers such as Slavoj Zizek Define it so not as a specific political system per se, but deeper as something that governs our desires and gives the meaning in the first place. Is there a difference between the two?
1: It's funny to bring up Zizek who, who at, at one point I was a
0: huge I'm, fan. Of course, of and, I'm Slovenian. And, and, I had to. And, right. Yeah. 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 I, no. 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 I'm I, I,
1: huge fan of and not a fan as much anymore. But because uh, I think there's a lot of complexity there. But we can leave right that for another conversation. um But he's right. Um, I think ideology is not just. Uh, a political leaning or a particular perspective on the world. Uh, ideologies, when they are part of belief systems, are real to those who hold them, right? They are they are driving perceptual, um, intellectual, psychological forces that shape the way in which we navigate the world. So ideology and belief aren't the same thing. Ideology is, I think, a very specific structure within belief, or it's a structure of assertions. About particular ways of seeing the world. But when ideology is folded into a belief system, into one's own belief, which happens frequently, then it becomes overlapping, right? It becomes part of that belief and it becomes real. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in the contemporary world, thinking about political issues and and complexities. People don't recognize that what people believe is real for them. And so people always think, oh, well, the other side is just wrong right? They're they're being asses. They just don't understand. It's like, no, no. Frequently, they believe what they're saying. And that's hard for people to understand. And I think that's one of the sort of roots of our political crisis is that people We're can... We're going to come
0: back to that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to ask you before that, is it possible for humans to have no belief at all? No. It's not possible.
1: It is. that, that Unless you're dead. What would that mean? Um, it, 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 it's impossible. We can't... Our Neurobiological biocultural selves cannot exist without having certain preconceived and perceived notions of what reality is, and that is part of now those beliefs change and structure, but but humans can 't function without commitments to the world of a particular way. Every single human grows up with commitments with beliefs with ways that shape the way they are and see the world. Um, to be without that would be a, maybe, well, you know what, let me step back. Maybe people who have severe cognitive dysfunction or people who are extremely autistic don't formalize beliefs in the same way um, because of this sort of issues of relating to others. But but I don't think uh, the vast majority of humans in, in what we consider typical functioning uh, can exist without
0: belief. Okay. I just wanted to bring up the example of feral children. Yeah. Where, I don't know. Raised by animals, if well, that's even but, a real thing. I think there were a couple of cases it's, there,
1: there are a few. There's actually a few cases. There's a few cases. I think it's very interesting. It's not like in the movies um wolf child and like, but there are but there are it's definitely not like tarzan um but there are um there are some cases um and, and it does happen but but again those children are human but they're raised by other or they're, they're they grow up in and around a community of other species and so they take on as much as humanly possible from that other species still having a kind of perception a belief a system just not not the kind of linguistic political historical system that affects the beliefs of folks who grew up around other humans
0: have you seen the big lebowski
1: yes of course
0: okay first of all i realize nihilism can be a serious philosophical endeavor (laughs) (laughs) and that in its proper sense it doesn't actually mean an absence of belief but in the big lebowski of course we have the three german nihilists who explicitly say they don't believe in anything right walter the dude's best friend played by john goodman who disdains the nihilists lack of any beliefs then says something that at least for me is one of the funniest lines in film history he says (laughs) excuse me say what you will about national socialism at least it's an ethos um so for him you (laughs) know even what the nazis believed is preferable to no belief at all so why is this idea of not believing in anything so jarring for us
1: Well, I think it's jarring when people don't understand what nihilism, I mean, let's just say this, this artificial version of it in The Big Lebowski, which is everyone should watch that movie if you haven't seen it. Um, But uh, um, so it's not nihilism really because they are organizing around a particular commitment to a cogent argument about the way the world is. It's a belief. that is absolutely a belief. It takes so much work to believe there's no belief, right? It's really hard and it structures your whole perception. It shapes the way you interact in the world. So true nihilism, right, is a very strong belief system by definition. Um, And so they say they don't believe in anything, but actually that in and of itself is a structuring perceptual landscape that they commit wholly and fully to. Uh, that is by definition, belief.
0: All right, Captain Obvious to the rescue here. But we live in an era where social media allowed us to have a go at each other, you know, at all times. <clears throat> and it does seem like that as soon as we're able to do so, we all want to be Mike Tyson on steroids, chewing each other's faces off. Civility has gone out of the window if it was ever there in the first place. In my case, I cannot. And now we come back to what I promised we're going to come back to. I cannot for the life of me understand for example a climate change denier. Mm. Someone who goes completely against our collective experience as we live it right now and against all established science and proclaims their own truth, you know, it just makes my blood boil and I have to write that sassy Facebook yeah. comment. I just can't help myself. I'm asking on behalf of my well-being right now, but how do we accept and transcend the fact that people have other sometimes even opposing views from us?
1: I mean, there's three different things there. The first one is, and let me address this, and I think this is really important. Everyone says how horrible social media and how awful people are. And yes, it does give access to a larger number, but the amount of people being asses on social media is a teeny, teeny percentage of the humanity out there. right? There are eight billion humans on the planet. There's probably a few million people driving 90% of the hate on social media. Uh, and that's, I think, something that's really important to remember. A colleague and I did a, an analysis recently, uh, published a couple of years ago, uh, of, of Twitter sort of social networks and dynamics. And yes, while a lot of people get caught in, millions get caught in, those millions are being directed by a very small sample, right? So I, I think that's important to remember. Now, it's more than we would have had access to before in your community. There just aren't usually aren't that many jerks. Um, and now we have a global access to people who are obnoxious around the planet. Um, so that's one thing, but that, we can put that aside. I just think, I just want to remind people that the vast majority of people on social media are not horrible. They're, they're actually not being. It's It's people who start stuff. And then the second thing that you said, people who join in. People, because we are joint like humans are collaborative like when we agree with someone we want to like a spouse agreement with that person we want to say yes i agree you're right even if you are being obnoxious i believe you're right and and i want to acknowledge my participation in this community so we get this piling on effect not so much because of personal malice but because of this human sense of belonging and joining um and then then the, the third thing which is the most important thing i think we have to divide up right look People who we disagree with sometimes actually believe what they're saying. They're not just wrong or lost. They're they're commit, committed to a particular belief. Um, so the question we have to ask in extreme cases like climate change is why? How does someone fully and wholly commit to something that is not only wrong, stupid, harmful, and deleterious to the species, right? How, how, why would someone want? take that position. Then we have to think about the details of, why, of how we believe. What do people grow up around? You are who you meet. You are who you hang out with. You are who you are influenced by. And so we have to think about education, location, language, historical framing, uh, contemporary political and economic frames. All of those things come together to facilitate bad beliefs, not false beliefs, right? Because if people believe them, they're true for them, but really inaccurate false beliefs. And that happens. You brought up National Socialism, right? We have a very good example of, of a sort of a wave of commitment um, by millions of people in a horrendous, horrendous, horrendous manner. And we're seeing that right now. I mean, the, the climate deni- climate change deniers are are doing irreparable harm to the rest of the humans and to the entire planet, right? Especially those with political power. Um, and they're wrong. You know, they're they're factually wrong, but they believe it. And so understanding how that belief happens. And so I think, and I'm rambling on here too long, but I think the challenge no, here, all. the challenge really is to recognize that some people to recognize who's actually believing something and saying it and who's actually manipulating. So, for example, here in the United States, well, globally, but in the US, recently we have this Fox News thing, right? So Fox News and there's good evidence to show it intentionally without belief intentionally is making certain arguments or making certain suppositions and presenting them repeatedly to facilitate the belief creation in others intentionally for financial and political gains right so we know tucker carlson was lying to people he doesn't probably believe most of the things he says we have good evidence he doesn't and yet did that regardless with the intent of manipulating others into belief and so there's where we have to target i think my my anger is not at you know some random person in you know i don't know ohio or florida in the united states who doesn't believe that climate change is happening my anger is at the politicians corporations and
0: academics
1: who are creating the space for that kind of belief to emerge
0: my problem is you know because i'm doing this podcast my problem is with a lot of these really popular podcasts that have the attitude of Let's invite everybody and then hear them out. I think Joe Rogan now has wow. more listeners than this, than CNN. And, you know, I like a lot of his stuff, but a lot of his stuff is also like this. Let's invite a climate change denier. And yeah. then, you know, maybe he has some interesting ideas. It's like inviting a murderer to explain also his point of the view or something, yeah. you know, this yeah. fake false objectivity. Seems even more horrible, harmful, excuse me, than I don't know Tucker Carlson yeah. because you would expect it from Tucker Carlson. Well,
1: I mean, what you just said there—fake objectivity—and it's really this notion of two sides. Every story has two sides. That's not true. Some stories have fifty sides. Some only have one. Right. Um, and, and I think I think we have to grow up and recognize that. And I think the United States is doing harm to the planet here with this notion of individualism and everyone—you know—everyone's opinion is equally. The same because we're all individuals and we can own our guns and do whatever we want. And I think Joe Rogan is a perfect example of that, right? He says, "Well, I'm just giving voice. I'm just listening to what will make you know sell and 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 people." But but he doesn't. He favors right wing. He favors racists and sexist uh, and 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 climate science deniers and and vac- anti vaxxers. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a little terrifying because of the power that he has. Um, you know, I remember watching him on a. TV show years and years ago. And it took me years to realize that the Joe Rogan of the podcast was the same actor on this uh, TV show where he played a handyman on a radio news channel. So, um, but you know, whatever, I don't know him. I don't know who he is as an individual human being, Uh, but I do know that um, his many of the guests on his podcast and what he promulgates there is horrifically dangerous and is harming people. The same with someone who I had respect for before. um, uh, I'm just blanking on his name. Was a comedian. Um, he made the movie *Idiocracy*. Uh, Bill, Mahler. Bill Maher. Bill uh, Maher, right, right. Yeah, he's also yeah, yeah.
0: a talk show host, isn't he? Yeah,
1: talk show host. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing the same thing. You know, he just had Elon Musk on uh, the other day. And they were just bemoaning about the major like challenge or crisis to humanity is wokeness, right? That that woke people are destroying everything. And this is when right wing governors and legislatures are canceling tenure, burning books, and uh, firing professors and and uh, scientists. Like they're like, oh, these academics like me who are lefty and woke. That's the real challenge, not people who are actually doing direct demonstrable harm to the entire system. And so I have to ask, you know, why? What why are you so upset because some, you know, left-leaning scholar is arguing from a database perspective about certain things, whereas you're not losing your mind because the governor of Florida is rejecting tenure and falsifying data. I I, you know. Anyways, that was a little rant. I'm sorry. I went off <laughs> no, there. But no, it's no. very annoying Please. because these people know they're smart people, right? Joe Rogan is not an idiot. I'm sure he's quite intelligent, as so is Bill Maher and these others. But they're intentionally fostering one specific way to think, uh, which is facilitating belief in a lot of people who
0: vest a lot of trust in them, and they're doing harm. But how do we go forward then? You know, they believe this. We believe this. Arm people. Arm people with the capacities. Right. Education
1: systems. Right. So the right. education system in the United States 50 years ago was one of the best in the world. Today, it's one of the worst. Um, you know, uh, I. I' visited um, uh, schools in Berlin, uh, sort of the grade schools and whatever, and they're very good, a lot of the ones I saw. You know you, even though you might have a wide you have a wide range of problems in Berlin, across Germany for sure, but you also have basic reading skills and basic capacity to sort of move between different kinds of information. And so and, and you see this in different parts of the world, huge inequities, in the basic training of humans, right? We need to be trained. You can't just walk into this world. You have to learn how to read. You have to learn how to critically read. You have to learn about history. You have to sort of learn about health and society. Those things are important. So I would argue, and and the United Nations and many, many, many incredible scholars, Nelson Mandela, uh, uh, one of my heroes, um, uh, argued that, look, you're not born hating. You have to learn to hate, right? But you also learn to love and you learn to understand. And it's through education, it's through your community and your schools and your family that you learn things. And that's where we need to focus. I you know, these giant I I have very little faith in politicians, uh at the moment. I have much more faith in people.
0: Since we're here, there's a lot of talk of what is natural these days. Uh, you know, speaking of YouTube algorithms again. Yeah. And natural is, of course, always what aligns with a certain political agenda. On the other hand, in one of your talks, you said the following, which I thought was really interesting. Anyone that says that things are the way they are because of human nature doesn't know what human nature is. Could you unpack that for us a little bit?
1: Yeah. So there's no such thing as human nature. There are human natures. There's many successful ways to be human. So there's not one thing, one consistent pattern. So what do humans do? We cooperate. We're incredibly complex socially. We coordinate. We're incredibly cognitively complex. There's a whole bunch of things that are patterns. So But within those patterns, there's many ways to express them or many ways to be, many ways, many cultures, many languages, many ways to express sexuality, many ways to express sort of ideology, all of those things. And what we need to understand is it's not like Jekyll and Hyde or it's not like this Hobbesian notion. If you strip away culture veneer at the heart, you have the root, which is the selfless brute or or if you're Rousseauian, this sort of, you know, lovely savage. Uh, The problem is, is that we're never one thing. We're much more dynamic in that. So when people say human nature says X, right? Biology says X, you know, history says X. That's the explanation. They're wrong, right? It's never just one thing and it's never simple. So if you say human nature does this, I will say, okay, what about this case and this case and this case and this case and this case case that don't fit your definition? What you need to understand is there's not just one successful way to be human. There are parameters, right? There are certain ranges, right? Humans are not about about to sprout wings and fly, right? That's not going to happen. Um, But barring that, (laughs) humans can do a lot of things, a lot of, they can resolve or answer a lot of challenges in a variety of different ways. And I think we need to understand that. Um, and that way, and we all know it, like look around your community, there, there are people of different body sizes and shapes, there are people of different sexualities, there are different desires and dreams and goals, and, and that's okay, <laughs> you know, it's not, there is not one best or even normal way to be human.
0: Time is upon us, unfortunately, I could talk with you for, for a very long time. This podcast title is Eurotrash, so I have to ask you something a bit more, tra- even more trashy at the end. Great. So professor, you also wrote a book called Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You. We don't have time to tackle all of those. So I'll just ask for those of us who are married, how big of a mistake that we make?
1: (laughs) Okay. When I say monogamy is a lie, I meant the idea that it is human nature to be monogamous or that marriage is some biological inherited thing. Marriage is a political, emotional, romantic, love-based, economic necessity. Who knows? There's a wide variety of reasons why people bond together. What's really important is the pair bond, is the relationship that individuals have. And humans are really good at pair bonding. We bond with others incredibly tightly, not just one, sometimes three or four or five. Sometimes it involves sex. Sometimes it doesn't involve sex. Sometimes they're heterosexual. Sometimes they're homosexual. Uh, There's a whole bunch of complexity. But humans have this amazing ability to fall in love. And to commit to one another and that's incredible all the other stuff the cultural stuff about marriage and economics and politics that actually we've just layered on and that's fine right everyone has their own decisions about that but it's about the relationship, and humans are the super relationshipers, right? We're we're really good at at having all of these really complex bonds and connections. So I named the title "Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies." I told you because look, the the way people think about the nature of race and racism, of love and sex, of marriage, of aggression and violence, uh, most of those ways people frame them are wrong. They're too simplistic, and they're too much of one nature. um So. I, I just wanted to challenge the myth, but no, it's, it's not a mistake unless, you know, it doesn't work out for you. Then maybe it was, but no, <laughs> the, the falling in love, uh, romantic relationships and the commitment to one another is an, is an amazing thing that humans can do and we can do it in, in beautiful ways. And And I love that. That gives me a lot of hope about
0: people. By the way, you're also a primatologist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do these so-called smart apes, do they also have something similar?
1: That's a whole other conversation. So social relationships and bonds, are they are some of the most important things. Humans do it distinctively, but you know what? So do wolves. So do some primates. So do some uh, cetaceans. There's, uh, there's a real incredible world out there of unbelievable relationships between organisms, especially in mammals. Birds, too. Um, so that's a whole nother conversation. We think we're so amazing. Uh, I tell you, some other animals out there uh, put us to shame in their amazing bonding uh,
0: capacities. We talked a lot about the algorithms, and lately, at least on Instagram, a lot of these short videos. I liked a couple of these, like cute animals doing silly yeah. things, and I'm getting more and more of these, and I'm becoming addicted. And they're, they're very. Addicted. There you have it.
1: But they're very addictive because you're a mammal. We're mammals and we see this stuff. We see, like, the dog look up with the eyes, or like the dog and the goat play together, or, you know, whatever, any of those things. You're like, ah, you know, we have these cultural things about it, but we also recognize mammalian joy. When we see joy in another mammal, we feel it. We, it communicates to us because we have the same kind of limbics, this physiological system. Um, and so there's something particularly joyful for a human. To identify joy in another species, and it, I think it reminds us of, of, of places us in connection with the world in some ways. And I think that's why those animal videos make us so happy.
0: Professor Fuentes, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're seriously busy. Where can people find your work?
1: I your mean, books I'm, are sold
0: everywhere, right? Yeah, my
1: books are sold everywhere. A couple of languages: uh, English, Spanish, um, Romanian, Chinese, Korean. I think. Um, uh, if, if, if it isn't a language that, that you'd like, let me know. And I'll try to push them in that direction too. Well, Slovenian, um, can, of course. Yeah. Well, Slovenian. It isn't in Slovenian. Right. Um, um, but, uh, so my books are out there. Um, uh, my articles and blogs and videos are readily available. Please follow me at, uh, at anthro Fuentes, uh, on Twitter. Uh, that's where I do a lot of my, I think best science communication. Uh, I enjoy that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, um, read, uh, listen, listen to podcasts like
0: this. It's it's worth the while. Seriously, this was a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you to my lovely patrons, Tai Chi, Carmen, and Veronica. Thank you for your support. You're amazing. If you want to support Eurotrash too, you can do that. Just go to Patreon and find me there. All right. Thanks again.